Hey, what's happening, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Perkelheimer. Well, on today's live stream, I welcome Chris Wood from Captive 8 Aquaculture. What's up there, Chris? Thank you. I'm well. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you, man. We're going to uh, get down and dirty and, and talk a lot about uh, Captive 8 and, and the products and I'm sure a whole bunch of uh, other stuff. But um, just to give folks a background on Chris, he is a marine biogeochemist. I'm not actually sure if I've ever heard of that uh, title, biogeochemist, and he's also the chief science officer of Captivate Aquaculture. He is also the founder and sole owner of Captivate. The company's R&D draws from Chris's experience and two additional scientists with a total of four PhDs. Chris entered the aquatics industry in 2000 as a marine scientist and product development and support specialist, and since that time has worked with Aquarius and organizations throughout the world to improve outcomes with aquarium systems and recirculating aquatic ecosystems. Some of the organizations, and this is an impressive list here, that have used his formulations include the Smithsonian Institute, Disney, NASA, and the Israeli government, as well as several aquaculture operations in the U.S., including ACI Aquaculture. So before we start chatting with Chris, I do want to thank the sponsors for this show, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate them supporting this live stream, and I really, really appreciate everybody uh, tuning in. So if you have not hit that like button, I see we already have over 50 people tuned in. Please hit that like button so more people can find the stream. And as always, always, we encourage questions. So drop that in the chat or if you have comments. And uh, right off the bat, I want to thank Amanda Meckley and, uh, and Chris for the super chat. Have, uh, the comment is, have so much respect for Chris Woods and everything he does for our hobby. Awesome that you got him on Keith. Yeah, man, we're, uh, we're stoked. We're really stoked to, uh, to have you on. So, Chris, tell us, um, you know, maybe a lot of folks don't know about your company, Captivate. Tell, tell us, um, you know, you know kind of like a down and dirty what, what you guys are all about. Sure. Uh, first and foremost, Captivate exists to provide practical solutions uh, based on applied and exploratory research to significantly improve the overall health of organisms maintained in recirculating aquatic ecosystems and to provide effective and reliable means of managing all aspects of water chemistry in those systems. It's a similar approach to engineering. Uh, we work in a variety of industries, uh, including uh, recirculating aquaculture, hydroponics, uh, scientific research, usually pertaining to ex situ biotope ecosystems, aquarium husbandry, a personal passion of mine for my entire life, and biofuel production. And it's a broad range of industries, but there are strong connections between all of them with respect to uh, the care uh, of, of those systems and the diversity of the projects keeps every day really fun for us. So, you know, I found this interesting looking at your website, it, you know, one of the uh, sentences, it says uh, captivate aquaculture is described as a non-institutionalizable, independent and fully informally qualified organization. Can, can you uh, expand on that, what that's all about? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's my lofty way of saying that uh, we're independent of, of any other organization. We're privately owned, and through our research, we apply a lot of 
what I would call unconventional approaches to providing better outcomes in recirculating systems. That's not the sort of thing that flies with every company, uh, but our scientific advisement team has decades of applied research experience in several fields of study, including biochemistry, and this has opened some very interesting doors for us lately. Um, within the context of reef husbandry, we've seen some dramatic impacts on coral tissue growth and coloration that we feel are the direct results of these innovations. And that's kind of where that that fully and formally qualified and non-institutionalizable comes from. <laughs> so now you, you guys are also, um, you know, stressing kind of like the quality and, and innovation in terms of the company. What are you guys doing on that front to uh, promote those types of um you know, qualities for the company. We try to maintain a, a, a balanced focus on scientific integrity and the environment. Um, with respect to uh, to innovation, we go outside the box. You know, with respect to solving problems or, or achieving specific goals, we conduct our own in-house research. We review published literature on a variety of, of topics of interest, and those are critical to the innovative process. In terms of the quality, we formulate everything with the highest purity components available. Uh, that, and we maximize formulation strength and effectiveness as a result of maximizing the formulation strength. This is done regardless of the price of the components. And lately, especially now that we're a, a, a year or, or more out of COVID, things are, are getting very, very expensive. But uh, the dual benefit of having the, the, the purity of the components and the strength of, uh, that, that we put them into the formulations is dual, it minimizes the negative impact of impurities that could be present because they're, they're largely not. And the active strength of the formulation is uh, greater assuming you're comparing apples to apples with another product. So customers are getting positive results with less accumulation of potentially harmful or just undesirable elements uh, or compounds. And uh, where that balances out with the environment is we do our best to mitigate our carbon footprint by minimizing the presence of water uh, and acidifying compounds in our formulations. We don't encourage the use of those things, although they in many cases have a, a practical application. Uh, and we use packaging materials which are largely post-consumer or are recyclable. So you, you brought up a point in terms of, um, you know, with COVID and, and um, you know, all the issues that, that come along with it, like supply chain issues and, and what have you. And, and um, you know, there's price increases being felt across the board for a whole bunch of, um, you know, different uh, components in terms of manufacturing, right? And, um, you know, so trying for, for you guys in terms of trying to keep that um, the quality that you're trying to, um, you know, maintain in terms of your products, has, has that been a challenge in terms of trying to, um, you know, squeeze out, you know, meet that bottom line and be able to, um, you know, have products that are still profitable and still have that, um, you know, high standard of, um, you know, in, in terms of the production and the quality of the product? I don't economize anywhere where it comes to the raw materials that we use. Uh, if someone passes along, if one of my one of my suppliers passes along a a, a really egregious price increase, of course I'm going to try and uh, negotiate as much as I possibly can. 
In the end, though, I'm not going to say, well, I'll just go with the next lower cost uh, component because I need that extra fifth of a cent in, in that, that, that I'm ultimately being charged per gram. That's not going to happen. What winds up happening is I have a fluid price structure where I don't keep pricing the same throughout the entirety of the year. I don't keep it the same throughout the entirety of a single quarter because my suppliers, when I go to order a, a raw material, if the price has gone up, that's the price that I'm going to pay. Right. They're not going to say to me, we'll give you a 90-day grace period. Most quotes are good for a period of 30 days. That is the world that, that we've always all lived in. And that's how I have to operate things in order to make sure that quality is never in question. You know, if if we have to pay more, then we will. If I'm unable to get a, a component because, and, and this has happened lately in a couple of instances, because there were six manufacturers prior to COVID. During COVID, four of them went down the drain and now the remaining two manufacturers are handling all of the global demand for this material, then I might have to wait six months until I can get my hands on it. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to go looking for an alternative that may not have the same performance that I needed to have. So the, the product quality and the science, is, it always plays the primary role I mean, with, without, without exception. So um, we're gonna we're gonna get into some uh, specifics, Chris, in terms of your products because I've I've started to um, to use some of them and, and I have some experiences and and um, definitely would like to share you know my thoughts in, in terms of those experiences. But just uh, give us like a general before we dive into some specifics, just kind of give us a general overview in terms of the kinds of products that you guys have available out there for reef keepers. Sure. Uh, to begin, I think it's important to highlight that all of our work is completed in the U.S. in our own facility, and there's a multi-step quality control procedure in place to ensure that there are no errors in any product. And I mention that because that lately has been a concern of a number of people within the reef industry. We have four categories, I would say, within the context of reef aquarium husbandry. One of them is salt mixes, uh, supplements to adjust uh, inorganic water chemistry. That's everything ranging from uh, critical elements in marine systems to uh, alkalinity and pH. Uh, organic compounds, those would be dry planktonic blends, uh, tissue growth enhancers for coral and for fish. Uh, feeding stimulants, again, for fish and for coral, and immune boosters, um, again, I mean, for, for everything in a marine system. The last category would be nutrient management, consisting of microbial blends. We've got a couple of dry blends. We have one liquid, uh, which specifically works on, on inorganic nitrogen, and uh, we have a, a nitrogen supplement and a phosphate supplement uh, that are both in liquid form and very, very concentrated. So those would constitute the, the nutrient as or management aspect of it. So the uh, the first I had heard of you guys was uh, a couple of years ago through Chris at uh, ACI, and um, you know he uses a lot of your products. So I've visited Chris's uh, facility a couple of times and just seen his amazing you know, corals in person. And, uh, you know, 
it does take a lot for me to kind of switch to new products because I, I'm kind of the sort of the guy that's very set in my ways. You know, I've been keeping reef tanks for nearly, nearly 30 years and, um, you know, I like to stick with what works. So there's a lot of times where I won't, um, you know, kind of dip my toe in the water to try something new. But, you know, seeing Chris's results certainly um, opened my mind up and I wanted to uh, I wanted to try some of your stuff. So the first thing I started to use was your um, your cockwasser, and I borrowed Chris's um, you know method for cockwasser dosing. I you know I've got the uh, the drums, and um, you know I have cockwasser in, in a thirty gallon drum with RODI water. It's super saturated. I'm dosing it to uh, to elevate the uh, the pH. And what I noticed with your cockwasser versus other brands that I've used in the past is that yours seems to stay very much super saturated longer than the other brands you know so you know your your cockwasser seems to like have not lose it doesn't seem to lose its potency over time right so what i've been doing is i've been i've been doing a couple of different things i've been um measuring the potency by measuring the ph in you know of the um the, the that solution and uh, what is it 12.5 is a uh, is is the number that you shoot for to to know that it's a super saturated solution and then also i've looked at um conductivity and i believe it's um 10.3 is the magic number in terms of conductivity to determine whether a um a solution is is um cockwasser is super saturated and you know i i was just doing some reading up and research on my own and i know that randy home far randy holmes farley had said that um conductivity is a better way to um to measure that in terms of the super saturation but i've heard others say ph and i know chris believes it's ph what what do you think, uh, Chris, in terms of what's the best measure to determine whether your cockwasser solution is supersaturated? In this application, because we're talking about reef husbandry and because people are using cockwasser solution primarily to elevate the pH in their system, the, the pH of that solution to me is a more useful metric to, to go ahead and target. I, I don't know if it's better or or than than using conductivity but because i am able to look at the ph of a cal of, of a of a calcium hydroxide solution or any hydroxide solution and see what the ph of that is that gives me an idea if i know what it should be of whether or not it's going to impact the um, system it's being dripped into the same way that it that it traditionally has if that number is down then actually what that tells me is this calcwasser should be used, this calcwasser powder should be used as quickly as I can manage it if I start seeing low pH and there hasn't been a drastic change in the in, in my atmospheric conditions here. So to me, from from a practical perspective, pH pH is the way that that I do it. I, I think it makes sense because that's primarily again what people are using it for. Any um any theory in terms of why your cockwasser might you know be holding its potency more so versus uh other brands? I mean, do you guys ever uh... none that I'm going to share here, Keith? <laughs> That's a secret no, sauce saying. you got uh, there, uh, Chris. <laughs> right, right. I think that our calcwasser. First of all, I'm I I research everything. I get certificates of analysis of every lot number of every material that we consider purchasing and. Uh, and I, I hunt around for material that is meets meets spec, so to speak. That's that's one. I don't know how that compares to other people's calcwasser. I mean, I, I say on the on the website 
and I, and I hold to this. I don't test anybody else's product, so I have no idea how Captivate compares to somebody else's stuff. But in addition to it being very pure, uh, it is packaged quickly, and it's not kept in large open containers. It goes from the 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 um, the 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 tote or the bag or whatever I receive it in to, or the drum to the finished package. And that, and it happens very quickly. And so there's not a lot of exposure to the atmosphere. There's some exposure, but it's, but it's minimal. I mean, it, it happens very, very quickly. So we're just very careful about that. And that I think is one of the reasons why perhaps the pH of that solution stays higher longer. And if you keep, the air out of that bag that you get our calcwasser in as much as you as you can it will last that much longer for so you so dude now you've got me wondering like uh do i need to like um you know break the uh you know just be as quickly as possible when i'm going into opening that bag that product bag there and and try to scoop out calcwasser i mean is that got to be like done as quickly as possible and not leave the bag open for a while it's a good idea Really, you learn something new yep. every day. <laughs> <laughs> now, I also yeah. have a, um, you know, like a little bucket with a lid on top of it. Is it best to keep it in the in the uh, the packaging with the um, the Ziploc versus keeping it in a uh, sealed bucket? Yeah, because you can squeeze the air out of the Ziploc bag. <sighs> Damn, I just put it in a bucket. <laughs> About five thousand yeah. grams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, right. Yeah, no, I I make sure that when it gets loaded out, it gets the air gets squeezed out of it as much as possible. I would love to see us be able to vacuum seal those bags, but it, it would gum up the, it would, it, we wouldn't get a seal. I mean, we, and we, I doubt that we'd get much vacuum after a while because that powder is as anyone who's handled this stuff knows incredibly easy to get up into the air. And it's, it's tough to, to, for those bags to be sealed without calcwasser shooting out all over the place. So. And in layman's terms, can you explain why you need to like have as little air as possible being exposed to the calcwasser in terms of it being uh, as potent as possible? The calcwasser undergoes a reaction with atmospheric CO2. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's effectively losing its capability to keep the pH high. So the point of you dosing it is precisely for that reason. So anything that you can do to mitigate that reaction from taking place is going to make that material more effective for you for a longer period of time. Very interesting. What about, um, you know, a lot of people use cock stirrers, <clears throat> right? Versus the, uh, the drum method that, uh, that Chris is uh, using that I use, I guess that you use and, and, and that, uh, some others use, but, um, you know, uh, what, what's, uh, is there any, you know, detriment to using a cockster. I mean, basically your most applications, you know, folks are having their RODI right in line with the cock reactor. And so you're, you're getting a constant influx of that RODI water to help top off the tank. Is that working against what you're trying to do and dilute that cockwasser solution because you're constantly getting an influx of RODI water into the uh, cock reactor chamber? Gradually, that would wind up happening if you reached a point where there really was water entering that reactor faster than much of a reaction was taking place. And the less calc washer that's in there, the more readily that that might occur. 
but it's an it, it can be an effective means of of applying calcwasser to a system. I definitely do not advocate anyone using calcwasser in an auto top off application without there being some sort of pH mediated control. And that's because I have had conversations with too many people over the last 22 years of doing this who didn't understand the consequences of hitting the system with too much calcwasser over a, 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 a span of time. And the result being the pH went way up in the tank and and they either it was either catastrophic or they lost a bunch of things. But that's happened on a number of occasions. I had a conversation with a with a gentleman. This is probably two thousand one, who had just dumped calcwasser into the tank, didn't bother to read the instructions, and of course everything died. And he called up screaming <laughs> that the product was defective. And of course, further investigation, we find out. This is what he did. He took a, a whatever, a tablespoon of it or something, some some egregious amount, and put it into his tank, and the pH shot through the roof, and, and, and everything died moments later, literally, in his case. That's not the only time that I've ever heard that. And the, the point of this is to increase pH, but it's also to control your pH. And those two things should go hand in hand. So the way that – and I would never uh, – add calcwasser to a system without doing what I'm going to say, which is I want a pH controller set to turn my, um, in my case, peristaltic pumps on when the pH uh, bottoms out at some number for me is usually 835 or something like that. And I have it turn off when the pH hits 837. I use that very small amount of, um, of, of, difference because I realize that there's a good chance that the pH in the system is going to go above three, seven, even after it's, even after the, the pump has, has shut down and there's no more calc solution entering the tank. I could see it increase another um, few, few hundreds of a point, something along these lines. I mean, it could go to 8.4 or something like this. And uh, from having a conversation with you the other day, I know that your pH has gone up pretty high at times. Yeah, no, it, um, you know, eight, six is kind of a common thing, you know, for me lately, you know, is, is that a, um, I mean, my, my assumption is that, you know, eight, five is kind of like the butter zone in terms of that higher limit for pH and that, um, you know, eight, six, you know, you're starting to kind of creep into high of, um, you know, a range is, is that, a, um, is that correct thinking or is, is that not danger zone yet? It probably is danger zone. I haven't seen any. I, I, I'll be vague here. I haven't seen anything on this that I felt was conclusive. It's kind of like when years ago there was this chloride imbalance argument that kept on being brought up in, uh, on the forums. If you don't know, if you haven't experienced that thing yourself, I, I, I don't think there's a way to to say that it is. Uh, too high. And clearly your system it, going to a, a maximum of 8.6, are the animals okay? Everything's doing awesome. And what's the low end of pH that that particular system tends to drop down 8, to? 
Yeah. So you're staying within a relatively narrow yeah. window. It's the same. It, it's a more narrow window than I think a lot of people are able to achieve. The beauty of using Kalkwasser, especially with a controller, is that you will get to a point where you can keep the pH within a very tight window and and it does it for you effectively. I mean, as long as you are refilling your 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 vessel, your dosing vessel, and you're keeping your probe calibrated, it's 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 straightforward. But to to do it another way where calc is just being added to the system without your control. If you get a day where it's particularly hot and there's way more evaporation, the system may not respond right. very positively to pH going, you know, to eight five or something like this. If your pH typically doesn't get past eight three, um, so uh, this this is why I say it it becomes a potential hazard. It's one that I think gets blown out of proportion by people who don't use calc. There's a lot of when I speak to people regarding calc water, and certainly since. Um, uh, Chris and Amanda have done a lot of of promotion of the calc use that, uh, that that they go through in their facility. I get a lot more questions about um, calc washer because it, it it went out of favor. You know, it fell out of favor. People people stopped using it. They 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 did something else. It was no longer cool or or whatever for a lot of people. Uh, and a lot of the reef aquarists who have been in the hobby for 20, 30 years, it's kind of second nature. A lot of them said, oh, yeah, you know, I, I haven't been using it in a long time, but I remember that my coral growth was mind-blowing when I did use it, and I never had any problems with alkalinity and, and so forth. The biggest complaint you had back then was your calcium might be running a little bit low, but your corals were still growing like weeds, and why are you really doing this? You know, is it you're trying to keep your calcium at 450, or are you trying to get good acro growth? And so... Um, in some of these questions, I hear people fairly frequently saying, isn't it really, really dangerous? I've been told that I could kill everything. Yes, you can kill everything if you're not aware of, of, of what this stuff is doing for your system. But if you are aware and you, you recognize that, hey, all I got to do is just dose this in conjunction with a calibrated pH controller, which my... <clears throat> computer control system uses are already incorporates and I'm not using that function now kind of a thing, then it's a no brainer. I mean, it really is. Um, yeah. Chris from ACI says we target 8.3 average and with Chris's guidance, we've had, we've achieved this, uh, for over a year and a half now. Yeah. You know, I, um, I still haven't got my, um, mind controlled yet, you know, in, in, in terms of, I'm not shutting off the cockwasser dosing, you know, when it hits a certain level or turning it on when it hits a certain level. I, um, and I've been able to kind of, um, you know, do it without doing that. I, I, I guess what I, where I hesitate is like, you know, what if, uh, the pH probe, I, I calibrate my pH probes every four weeks. I think I do it every, um, is it every four weeks? Something like that. Pretty, uh, I'd have to look at my uh, maintenance schedule, but I do it often. But I do fear of like, um, you know, there being a, uh, a certain situation where it might, um, you know, all of a sudden kind of get thrown out of whack and, and something. And, and I understand you could put in certain conditions, right, in terms of a controller to say like, hey, if, 
if um, all of a sudden your pH is changing by 0.3, um, you know, tenths of a um, pH point, then ignore the rules that you're supposed to be following. I, I just, uh, I like to control the stuff myself versus giving too much control to the controller. Um, sure. But, you know, I mean, is there a risk in, in terms of having the controller do that sort of controlling? Is, is it? There's there's always a risk that something is going to fail without a doubt. If you have found a, a balance with the Calcwasser dosing that you're doing now, and the systems are hovering within a range where not only, well, I guess where I would say this primarily the system looks healthy. Yeah. The corals look healthy. That's always the first question to ask. Yeah. Well, what, do, what do the animals look like? What do the corals look like? If someone has got, like, you know, for instance, you're, you're, you're saying your pH is at 8.6. There are bound to be a lot of people who will hear that and, and, and start ranting about, oh, it's too high. Everything's going to die. Meanwhile, your corals have been in sitting at 8.4 to 8.6 for the past six months. They're growing very nicely. They look good. The color's good. The extension's good and so on and so forth. This is why practical experience is so much more useful than some of the information that is freely available. So again, you have that experience. You stick with what works for you. That's that's always you know, as a system technician, if you're if you're most comfortable doing it the way you're doing it now, then if you want to play around, set up another aquarium. And I've got too many there. aquariums, Chris. I can't do that. <laughs> yes, we all do. It's, it's it, a is a, it is a big sickness. So, so what would you say is, um, you know, the high range that people should try to avoid at least, you know? I would have said 8.5, but you're sitting here telling me <laughs> that you're running it at 8.6. So uh, whatever. And, and that 8.5 number would have been just some nebulous pulled it out of the sky because typically – you don't see seawater pH getting anywhere near there. And so from that perspective, you can make the argument, well, that's too high. But it's the same it's the same principle as a public aquarium with a fish system with nitrate of 100 parts per million. Every person walks in, every aquarium person walks in and says something along the lines of, this is negligence and these fish are all going to die. Meanwhile, the fish are all gorged they they look good could you take a fish out of the ocean and put it in there without it immediately dropping dead probably <laughs> not but the point is that that those that group of fish reached that or that that point of of nitrate over a gradual period of time they weren't thrust into it suddenly and um that is as as a reef aquarists know and you said to me yesterday or the day before nothing good ever happens quickly in an aquarium. So true. So true. Yeah. So, so, uh, eight, six, as long as that change happened over a gradual period, clearly the corals don't care. I mean, how are you efficient the yeah. system as well? Yeah. And you know, I'm getting super, um, quick growth in my acros too. So it's, um, working, it's oh, working, man. Yeah. Um, so Aaron yep. Duss is uh, asking, can we talk about the relationship between pH and, and phosphate absorption at different pH points? No, I'm not going to be able to go into, I'll just tell you honestly, I'm not going to be able to go into a lot of, of, it, of, of discussion on that. A lot of what I would have to say would probably be supposition or conjecture. That's not something that I've done a whole lot of looking into. You'll notice we don't sell phosphate adsorption type products. Um, 
I, I just, I haven't used them in a long, long time. And it's not an area that I've done any, uh, considerable research into. So I'm, I'm sorry, but, uh, I, I can't answer any questions. No, like that's that. cool, man. You know, you're being honest. So appreciate that. Um, Abraham Estrada, what level of calcium does he recommend to keep? Cock seems, uh, keeps my alkalinity stable, but my calcium seems to always rise up to 500. Then I have to cut down on the cock and calc and dose soda ash for a while until it goes to 430. Oh, that's interesting. That's not a problem that many people encounter. It's usually the other way around. Usually... And this was this was the 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 downside of Kalkwasser dosing many many years ago. The calcium concentrations were often difficult to keep within that 400 part per million range, plus or minus 10 or something like this. Especially in mature systems that were under intense lighting and had a lot of stony corals uh, packed in that was it was very difficult to keep calcium high my recommendation is to try and keep calcium in the range of 400 to uh, 425 or something along those lines but that's again this is based on natural seawater chemistry and where the calcium would be if the salinity was at at, at the natural seawater number, which is 35.2, give or take a uh, tiny amount. That calcium uh, concentration is around uh, 411.9. Use that as your target. But uh, I, people have kept calcium at uh, 550 for months and months and months. And I, I haven't heard anyone say to me, I lost everything because my calcium went up to... I was keeping my calcium at 550 or five, whatever. I think people keep calcium up, up in that area all the time. I, I don't shoot for that. I, again, I shoot for something in the 412. Uh, how, range. um, how much should we pay attention to calcium? I mean, is, is, uh, how important is it versus uh, alkalinity? I mean, I always just really pretty much pay attention to pH and alkalinity and, and calcium kind of like, uh, wherever it falls, that's cool. But as long as it's not falling in a crazy low or high end, then, uh, I don't, stress too much about it is that something that you agree or disagree with do you think calcium is something that uh, should be paid more attention to i think it's i think it's very important to know what that calcium concentration is but again because people have grown coral pretty rapidly anywhere from probably 350 parts per million to 550 parts per million there's a huge range there. I mean, it's a massive window of uh, a massive range of values and people are still seeing good growth. If what you are seeing is um, that by paying more attention to those two parameters, to your pH and your alkalinity, you're seeing great growth and the calcium happens to be uh, a secondary concern, then I would encourage you to keep doing it the way that you're doing now. Yeah, my calcium is pretty much in the... Um 410 to 430 range for both of my systems. So it uh, just naturally is falling into a range that I like it to be in. Um, yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. So Sammy31D is asking, I want to implement uh, calc, but I'm torn be um, I'm torn between just doing ATO, calc, or stir. Any opinions? I'll be using two-part as 
buffer after the calc? I don't have any opinions beyond what I had said earlier, which is just to um, utilize a pH controller to keep the calc from jacking the pH of the system up too quickly. I, I'm not familiar with a lot of the auto top off units because I don't use them uh, in our in any of our systems here. When I when it comes to dosing calcwasser, for me it's very simple. I I put together a peristaltic pump in a waterproof housing, and I pull calcwasser solution out of a vat or a drum or a or a bucket, depending on what I think the requirements are going to be and when I know I'm going to need to get in to replace it. That's how I do it. I, I have, there's a, a lid that's, uh, that's, that's either got a band that, that keeps it in place uh, on top of that, whether it's a bucket, I, I use screw lid buckets. If I'm using drums, I'm using a, a, a drum that's a, a closed head drum uh, with, a, with a plastic band and a clamp. And I drill a very small hole to accommodate the silicone tubing. And every once in a while, I replace that tubing because calc accumulates on the interior of it. That works for me. Um, so, no, I don't have any uh, opinions on whether to do it with an auto top off or anything along those lines. Yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, uh, I, I have to say, I'm really digging the, um, you know, the drum methodology. It's, uh, it's really working well for me. I, uh, you, you mentioned something in terms of replacing the quarter inch tubing. I'm gonna have to do that, I guess. Um, how often would you recommend replacing that tubing? Whenever it looks like it's getting really plugged up and the drip rate of that, when I, I do it, when I see that the drip rate of the, the calc washer is changing pretty dramatically because I leave the pumps, the peristaltic pumps, once I set them up, I don't play with the rheostat. I leave it alone. And this is why I have, again, the pH controller, which is turning that pump off and on and so I don't have to worry about how fast it's pumping technically. I mean, I don't want it pumping quickly, but I never play with that speed dial. So when I see that the um, uh, that there's a, a lot of accumulation on the interior, and the beauty of, of silicone tubing is it's semi-transparent, so you can see when it's yeah. pretty plugged up, and you can you can feel it as well because it's so squishy. Yep. Um, folks, just want to remind you to, uh, to hit that like button. We've got uh, about a hundred people watching right now. So we only got 40 likes. So, uh, get, uh, get the, down to business there and hit that like button. So more people can find us. Uh, I see we've got another former guest, uh, watching Tulio Delacquia. Tulio, what's going on, man? Uh, his comments, just wanted to thank you for your contributions to our industry. Keep up the great work. Maybe he's talking about both of us. Thank I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's talking about you. <laughs> Thank you, Tulio. <laughs> and and I would say right back at you. <laughs> um, Chris at ACI, our calcium is one of the only supplements we need to add regularly. Even with a calcium reactor, calc dosing is key for us, saves us tons of money, and stability is unmatched to any other method we have used. Um, all right. I. This is one question that's a big debate in the hobby, I guess, between some folks in terms of Kalkwasser that um, has been going on. Calc slurry, opinion. Da dangerous, <laughs> not dangerous, if done right? Uh, you know, uh, as long as... Okay, if I was going to recommend anybody to, to do calc slurry, the way that I suggest, because there are a lot of... 
of, of people who contact me about that as well. Again, I'm, I'm, this is all in the context of using a pH <clears throat> controller. If you're going to implement a calc slurry into your system, first of all, I want you to be aware of, of the fact that if you put calc washer that's undissolved into your system inadvertently, the pH will go up. That's bad. If you don't believe me, take a cup full of aquarium water, take a clear glass, a pint glass full of aquarium water, take some calc washer. You don't need to take much. A pinch. I don't care how much you take. Put your pH probe into that glass of, of salt water. Add some calc washer to it. Stir it around and watch what happens to the pH. The pH is going to go up quite a bit. In all likelihood, it depends, of course, on how much calcwasser you add to that cup of water. All I'm illustrating here is that if undissolved calcwasser enters the system, the pH of the system is going to increase. If you're not controlling that uh, situation, then I would anticipate the situation or th that things are not going to go well. I would expect that the pH is going to go up pretty quickly. So if you're going to do it, uh, start off very conservatively. Make sure that the inflow and the outflow of water in, into that stirrer, whatever vessel you're keeping all of this stuff in, is such that it's not likely to kick any of that undissolved material up and into the stream that's going to go out into, into the system. Next, I would keep the pH probe that is uh, determining your uh, on-off very close to the point of entry of that calc washer solution to the system. So if my slurry is dripping into the system in, in one spot in a sump, I want the probe very close to that downstream of it. And that way, yeah, the, the, the stream is going to be interrupted a lot. There's, it's going to be on and off, on and off, on and off. I don't care. I'd rather, I'd rather do it that way and be safe to begin with than risk killing an entire cohort because I was wrong and Calcwasser got into the system and suddenly my pH went through the roof. There's not an easy way to fix that in, in very short order. I mean, there just isn't. So, if you're going to use a slurry, then that's that's what I would recommend. I personally, I just I don't see the benefit. I don't think that it saves me any time, and uh, and I'm not it's just not something that I would do in our in our systems. So um, that's just my opinion, my point of view on it. Um, you know, the other um, thing that I, I forgot to mention that other question about whether or not you know somebody should use a um, uh, a calc stirrer versus um, you know, like a drum type of methodology. I guess the uh, one good thing about a calc stirrer is that they do have a small footprint, right? You know, so um, if you if you have limited space underneath the um, the uh, the tank and inside the cabinet, then the calc stirrer could be easier to fit in there versus a uh, you know twenty gallon drum or something like that. So I guess that is a uh, one point to think about in terms of what you have in terms of space for that. Sure. Um, Absolutely. All right, man. Let's let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about trace elements. So, I have you know historically never dosed trace elements to my reef tanks. You know, I've always relied on doing water changes. I, I typically do ten percent weekly water changes, and um, you know, so that my my thinking in terms of doing that 
was that my trace elements were getting replenished via those water changes because you've got some traces <clears throat> in the salt mix that you're doing for the uh, for the water changes. But you said something to me um, in one of our conversations a little while ago that made a lot of sense to me, and that's, you know, corals take traces in on a daily basis, so it would be optimal to be able to replenish those traces daily versus doing it one time per week with water changes. So, um, you know, and, and so about six weeks ago, I did start dosing your, uh, your traces, the Isolate 8 uh, MT minor and, and trace element solution for both of my systems. I, and I'm kind of doing a pre-post ICP analysis and I've only um, got the pre-results at this point in time. But, um, but what I can say is that I am seeing some better coloration in certain corals at this point since I've been doing that. I think I've been doing it for about four weeks now. Can you talk more about um, why you think it is important to dose the traces to a reef tank and why it should be done on a daily basis? Well, you you if you're relying on I'll, I'll i'll answer this in two parts if you're relying on your salt mix to provide your minor and trace elements you better be sure that they're in there in the first place and you kind of want to know which ones are there and they need to be there they need to be there consistently otherwise i mean if if you're let's say that you're doing water changes to keep your strontium going but the manufacturer doesn't put strontium into their salt well clearly that's not going to help you so you know you you need to know what's in there uh, to begin with and hopefully you can go ahead and get your hands on a an analysis an average analysis of of their salt at the salinity that you plan on keeping it at the 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 role that a number of minor trace elements play in uh, in aquatic ecosystems especially where it comes to uh, primary producers, plants, zooxanthellae being um, in, in that category of primary producers. Those minor trace elements are involved in so many critical biochemical reactions. They're, they're involved with photosynthesis. Uh, they're involved with um, the production of biopigments. And that can be down to not only impacting the intensity of the coloration, but the colors themselves that, that are actually expressed in the coral tissue. Uh, they're, they're, they're involved with, with enzyme production, uh, production of antioxidants. Um, and a number of them are necessary for the assimilation of uh, various types of inorganic nitrogen, basically the ones that are important in, uh, marine ecosystems. So ammonia, nitrite, nitrate, um, urea on some limited amount. And at the same time, they're also involved with the uh, the acquisition of, of phosphate and sulfate. Where the really important elements are, which in my opinion are iron, manganese, and cobalt, those those to me are the ones that are that tend to be most biolimiting in, in marine and recirculating marine ecosystems. If you start dosing just those three elements, you typically see a couple of things happen: nitrate comes down a little bit by itself. You haven't done anything other than add minor and trace elements. And you don't just do this once. This is the kind of thing where you take a very small amount, you apply it uh, per the instructions. In the case of Isolate MT, it's incredibly concentrated. Uh, so a little goes a long, long way. And if you're dosing it on a daily basis, 
you're going to use very little of it relative to what you would probably need to do if you're dosing it weekly or even less frequently because you're keeping that concentration as flat as possible and so instead of the concentration of things attenuating all the time you're keeping it more or less right. flat with you doing a weekly water change the concentrations of things spike up and then if those elements are used by the the uh, life in the system they gradually drop back down until you do your next water change it's not a very consistent environment that doesn't lend itself, I think, to seeing very noticeable results. But if you add some of those minor trace elements on a on a frequent basis, especially if you can just say, to begin with, for instance, I know I need 10 drops of this stuff over the next five days. That you can put into an auto top off. Right. And that is going to get you a much more consistent distribution of those elements into the system and you're going to notice it relative to a once a week spike so you know um in, in terms of like icp tests and what have you you know you um you mentioned a whole bunch you know that you just talked about in terms of the minor um trace elements that you really care about what um what actually is in the isolate eight um you know traces in in terms of the key um trace elements is, is that a one kind of um one-stop shopping or is there other traces that you guys have that we should be thinking about dosing? Isolate MT is basically the, the most critical minor trace elements for reef systems and they're, they're all in together. It's a good starting point. If you just want to start out and see what sort of an impact these things are going to have on your system, then you'd go with a, a very small bottle of it, a 60 ml bottle, which is going to last most people a long, 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 long time. Uh, and uh, what that is providing is iodide, um, molybdenum, uh, iron, manganese, cobalt, zinc, nickel, vanadium, selenium, and there's a trace amount of copper in there. And the copper is critical. So don't let somebody scare you away from, I'm going to nuke my tank with copper. That's not going to happen here. It is very important. That is the all-in-one. You can. Uh, we also have the isolated solution. So for every one of those elements, there's an a very concentrated isolated solution for people who um, know that um, molybdenum is something that they need to be particularly uh, on top of in terms of dosing because their system has a high molybdenum demand. Just as an example, mostly iron and manganese are going to be the ones that are depleted very, very rapidly. Cobalt, uh, same same kind of a deal, but I think less so than those other two. But those three are, are kind of the big ones. Um, what about dosing traces for uh, macroalgae growth? You do the same exact thing. In fact, uh, Chris at ACI was using Isolate MT for a long, long time in improving the rate of macro al or of, of algae growth in general in their turf scrubbers, uh, and it, it had a, a pretty significant impact on that. Because we're talking about primary producers in terms of plants, marine plants, algae, all, all those elements are are critical to those those organisms. Uh, so same, same kind of a deal. So if you're raising, if you've got a macroalgae system set up, uh, absolutely MT is a good first stopping point um, to provide some of those 
those important elements while leaving out the ones that are typically regarded as being phytotoxic. So Jake Adams was asking a question that I was going to ask, but he beat me to it. Um, what's up there, Jake? What trace elements do you think we don't need to pay attention to or aren't really as important as the metals you mentioned? Barium, cesium, all of the lanthanides, uh, uranium, plutonium. Um, yeah, I mean, how people get uranium into their tanks, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but I do see it show up on ICPs a lot. But seriously, barium, lithium, um, those, those other ones that I mentioned, those are, those are elements that I think either play a role, which is, I won't call it insignificant, but I've read a, a, a fair amount on this and we've done a lot of experimentation. I haven't seen anything that said that, that some of those elements were uh, beneficial in any way. And in a lot of cases, they're considered to be pretty, pretty toxic. Yeah. You know, I was using one salt. I'm not going to mention the brand, but it was always registering very high in lithium. And, um, uh -huh. is that something that people should be concerned about? I don't know if it, if they should be concerned, everything comes down to, well, just how high is it? And are your corals appearing to be bothered by this stuff? And that's such a difficult question to answer considering the sheer number of variables that exist. You just can't pinpoint one thing and say, oh, well, it's the berry or the, the lithium. You know, my the, the corals don't look so good today. I just did a water change. That would tell you there's something in there that is bothering them for sure. High amounts of lithium, I don't know. Um, I wanted to get this question in again about cockwasser because this is a good question that um, I didn't ask you about. Sammy31D, what I want to learn, sorry about switching gears here, but uh, I do want to know the answer to this. What uh, I want to learn is a few tips on how to keep the calc from being so harsh on the pumps. Back then, I dosed it to the sump. Would it um, fare better in the overflow? I see. Keep the drip entry point away from your pump intakes is the, the best that you can do because eventually you're going to have to do some maintenance on those pumps no matter what but but yeah it, have the have the calc solution entering the system at a point that is as far um whatever upstream or immediately downstream where it's not going to get into those pump intakes so readily. I think that's the best about the best you can do because it's getting into the system. You do want it to react. Um, so uh, you just don't want it being distributed uh, uh, throughout the system that way. I, I've done it in the sump and I've done it in the overflows. That's, that's always been the case. I've, I've never tried dripping it into a display. Um, I don't see that there'd be a, a point in doing yeah. that unless it was right in front of the overflow but then it would probably not look that great so i wouldn't do it all right so let, let's get back to the traces um so you know like i said i um i'm definitely seeing some positive results in terms of um better coloration with corals I'll, I'll certainly be interested to see kind of what the um the post results look like in terms of the icp tests um but another thing that i'm also using that i'm going to start using is your salt mix and currently I've been using instant ocean. I've been using instant ocean for a couple of years. I, um, you know, I've tried ESV salt, good salt mix, Tropic Marin pro. And, um, 
you know, so I'm going to switch to your salt. And can you kind of give us an overview of your um, salt and provide some points on how it's actually different from other salt brands out there? Do you guys, I mean, you mentioned you don't compare yourself to, uh, to others in terms of the cock washer. Do you guys try to look, see what the, uh, the competition is all about in terms of the salt? You know, I, I think one of the things that um, scares me about salt, there's, there's been some instances out there for certain salt brands where there's been um, a lot of variability from one batch to the other. And that, and that does scare me about Instant Ocean. You know, it's kind of a mass-produced salt brand, and, and uh, I do have to test. I test for magnesium. That's what I test before I add it to my tank to make sure the magnesium is okay. I don't test for anything else. You know, I think some people actually might do ICP tests before they uh, add a salt uh, mix to their um, uh, aquarium or even test for other, um, you know, key elements like alkalinity and calcium. Um, but... Um, you know, so that that scares me about Instant Ocean. I mean, I don't want to call out Instant Ocean. I, I don't know anything in terms of any bad batches out there of Instant Ocean. So, um, you know, I, I'm just talking about any salt brand out there. And, um, you know, so one of the things I understand about your salt is that it is very, very um, consistent batch to batch. But can you kind of uh, expand on that and also talk a little bit more about, you know, your, your salt and, and how you think it kind of um, is different versus other salts out there? I formulate our salts to replicate nature, to replicate the natural chemistry of seawater as I see it being important. And what that means is I have all of the major elements in there in the appropriate ratios to one another, the um, minor and trace elements that exhibit nutrient-type behavior in terms of their concentration ranging from the sea surface to the bottom of the photic zone. Those are the elements that I include. And I use uh, data provided by oceanographers, who, who chemical oceanographers primarily, who, who um, take, uh, you know, perform assays on seawater at various points in, around the world. That's what I use as the as the target values. That that's the target value for our open ocean blend, which is the the formulate ASW. I don't have any knowledge of what anybody else's salt numbers come out to. I have no idea, and and I honestly can say I haven't looked at uh, aside from my previous employment history. I haven't looked at another manufacturers salt numbers since I formulated my first salt and that's probably in 2000. And since then I've, I've gone through a number of iterations and as data changes, the numbers change and the way that the salt is made now um, is, um, and I was unaware of this as I was doing it, but it's the same way I think largely that ESV produces theirs. It's a tremendous, it's a, it's a great solution to the issue of consistency. Uh, again, I was unaware of how, how they did their salt because I haven't been paying any attention, but to anybody's salt, uh, but where I found myself with, with our salt prior to the beginning of last or of, of this year was that I wanted to make sure that it was consistent from batch to batch. And so the way that we were doing that was we were doing individual batches that treated a specific volume of water. And if you mixed up, you had to mix up the entire container. And But every single time, it would be consistent. 
the way that it is now with this uh, four-part approach, um, you can mix up a liter of water. You can mix up a cup of water. You can mix up a billion gallons of water if you have enough material to do it. It's going to be ionically the same every single time, assuming you raise it to the same specific gravity and or salinity, excuse me. And uh, that makes it possible to be entirely confident that your salt is consistent. If you've got an accurate means of measuring the salinity of that container of seawater you just mixed up, then it's going to be the same every single time. Assuming you made accurate measurements on your end, that, that does right. require that. No, I mean, that, that, is, um, that is something that certainly appealed to me in terms of not having to worry about doing any tests after mixing the um, after right. mixing your salt, right. so I'm I'm certainly looking forward to um, to doing that, and and um, I'll do the same type of thing. I'll do like some pre post uh, ICP test analyses to uh, to see what's going on there. But I know Chris has been using it for a while. I think he mentioned that uh, they had been using Instant Ocean as well before they started using your uh, your salt. So it's um, yeah, it's it's gonna. Um, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I. Um, I'm going through a lot in terms of rebooting, you know, one of my tanks. So I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, uh, waste your good quality salt on, on a lot of, uh, big water changes until I'm like kind of done ready to, uh, get that project, um, um, started. So it's, it's going to be happening really soon. Um, Jake is asking a, uh, a question here. I use a lot of dry powdered calcium, magnesium, and buffer, and I've always wondered about purifying it after mixing it into solution. What are your thoughts, and how would you, how would one go about doing that? If you're talking, hi, Jake, if you're talking about uh, chloride salts of calcium and magnesium, then they can be kind of dirty, for, for sure. Um, calcium sometimes can leave a bit of a pinkish residue. Uh, magnesium chloride can sometimes leave a bit of a grayish residue. Certainly you can pump those through a sediment filter that you would use for pot or pre-filtration on your uh, water purification system, a five micron filter, or if you can get a bigger one, um, that might be fine. Magnesium sulfate, if you're using a high grade hydrated mag sulfate, you don't want to use that as your sole magnesium source, but they tend to be crystal clear when they go into solution. You don't get, if, again, if you're using a high grade, which, which is what we use in, in our salt, it, there's two magnesium sources. There's uh, the mag sulfate, and then there's a mag chloride component to it as well. That's, that's anhydrous when we mix it. Um, but it's, it's, it's a, a simple matter to go ahead and pump that solution through a pre-filter. You're probably going to have to pitch the pre-filter afterwards. And because it depends on how strong you make the solution, but if it's a very strong solution, it could take a while for that stuff to pass through the pre-filter just because the density can be really high. Because you can, you can push the concentration of those solutions quite quite high and if you push them towards maximum then that that pre-filter is probably going to seriously slow down your ability to get at that solution just because it's going to take an age to get through there but that's how you clean it up 
So we got another salt question, uh, Sammy 31D. Does the new salt precipitate in the mixing containers like IO? No. The way that it, you'd mix it is, again, it's four parts. Two parts are dry, two parts are liquid. The, uh, you, you mix, you, let's say you're going to fill up, a, a, you're going to do 50 gallons. You, you fill the, the vat up to, or the drum to uh, 40 gallons, just as a round number. You add in both of your dry components and you let them circulate for a couple of minutes and they're going to go into solution very quickly. Then you will have measured out the amount of uh, the of the first liquid component, component three in our case. You're going to add that to the mixing vessel. You're going to let that circulate for about a minute and then you're going to add the appropriate volume of component four and there will not be precipitation and it's going to mix and you're, you're good to go. You just want there to be some time in between putting the first and second liquid components in there. Otherwise, yes, they will precipitate. And if you put them together in the same container, they will <laughs> absolutely precipitate. I don't know that you're going to be able to uh, get that to go the other way. You could try. Um, you could heat it. You could heat that solution if you made that mistake. But the instructions are pretty explicit. So Please read the instructions. I'm very verbose, and I do that for a reason. Um, the reformer, if you mix a whole bag of your salt, how long will the parameters stay ideal? Will uh, prolonged mixing, uh, let's say a week in mixing container, have any effect on the final product? That's a good question. Depends on a couple of things. Depends on the amount of atmospheric CO2 that it's exposed to. Uh, if there's a lot of air circulation in that room, then, yeah, I could see the alkalinity of the water coming down a little bit. I would, and I do recommend in our instructions, put a lid on any salt, a tight fitting lid on any salt solution that you make if you're not going to use it for a while. That way, there's it's it's the same kind of an idea with the calc washer. You know, you don't want there to be a lot of atmospheric reaction. Then the other uh, possible reaction that could take place is accumulation of calcium carbonate on the um, pumps on the on the impellers and stuff like this but that's not something that I have personally witnessed with our salt and it's not something that you should really anticipate experiencing either because it's a relatively dilute solution at at only you know uh, in the case of the of, of the ASW it's for 11.9 and the reef is I don't know 420 something along those lines I think um, it's not, it's not like you're mixing up a very concentrated solution, so you, you shouldn't have too much of a problem. Um, the one thing I hate about IO is that it's a dirty, you know, leaves a dirty residue behind. Is is your salt um, clean? Yeah, it's very clean. the 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 dry components are uber clean, and actually, the way that we produce the two liquid components there is a clarification process that occurs there where anything that's suspended in the solution tends to fall out. And so it keeps things that much cleaner. It's, it's, it's pretty clean, very clean. All right. We're circling back with Jake here. Um, he, um, he, he said that was exactly my thoughts about running it through a carbon block with a booster pump. So he's asking about a carbon block. You can try that too. I mean, if you're trying, depends on what you're trying to pull out. Um, if you're trying to pull out 
I guess you could do it with a carbon block. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fine filtration. That's particulate filtration. I had never considered doing it that way. I've done it in the past through a, a string-wound sediment pre-filter or through a, a fused sediment pre-filter. Never tried doing it through a carbon block, but I can see that there could be some benefit to that for sure. All right, we're uh, we're jumping around a little bit here. Um, Romeo S. Chris, can you go into more detail of the copper in Isolate MT? You hear so many stories about people staying away from copper in their tanks. Yeah, I think that that is probably because copper is applied as a a treatment for sick fish, and somewhere somewhere along the lines, um, people started to realize, hey, copper is bad because it kills stuff. Absolutely, if you hit a system with copper or if some nefarious person drops a, a, a copper coin into your reef tank, there, are, there could be real problems. The copper is provided in a very low concentration, but it is necessary. And if, if anyone out there, Chris, this means you, who have used isolate mt can chime in that your copper numbers have not gone through the roof and in fact everything looks great then that's always the that's always the proof it's not good enough for someone to say no no it's all going to be safe what you really want is someone to come in and say hey i've i've been using this stuff with a hundred thousand corals over the last two years and quite literally we're unaware of there having been any problems that were copper related chris so, actually made a comment before that they actually dose copper there you yeah. go. Um, Chris is saying now copper is a key element in the photosynthesis. Um, nine parts per billion, I guess is what uh, they're shooting for. Uh, somebody, oh wow, is asking about your captive eight coral foods. Can you um, give us a lowdown on that, Chris? Sure. Uh, first of all, they're all dry. <laughs> so you're not, uh, you're not, putting stuff into the system that you don't need, namely being water and things that would keep those organic compounds from deteriorating uh, with, with time. The, there are three. Uh, there's Integrate Reef, Invigorate Reef, and Integrate Planktivore. And um, Integrate Reef is a basic coral food. Uh, integrate planktivore is more of a food for planktivorous marine fish and suspension feeding invertebrates that are going to pick larger particles out of the water. Invigorate reef is a bacterioplankton. All three of them, it's a blend of bacterioplankton, all three of them have the impact of improving polyp extension pretty noticeably. The first couple of times you use them, you're not going to see a dramatic response within probably 15, 20 minutes. As you continue to use them, the response time from the coral drops, and you'll get to a stage where the corals, within a few moments of the stuff getting into the system, all of a sudden they start expanding, and they're, they're, they're out to feed. That's a result of some of the um, very special compounds we put in. And um, uh, I, I pull from a lot of biochemistry for these uh, for these coral foods so, and, and fish food in this case of the of the the, uh, um, the planktivore blend. Um, they're low in phosphate relative to a lot of 
foods that I have been informed <clears throat> tend to drive phosphate a little higher per unit mass applied. So what I'm saying is if you apply one gram of integrate reef versus one gram of something else, then potentially your phosphate number will not increase as much with the integrate reef because it doesn't have, and this would go the same with the uh, integrate planktivore and invigorate reef, same kind of a deal. But there are no fillers. I don't put fillers into anything. I don't put any pH adjusting compounds in anything. And, and actually, just quickly to touch on something, Jake, if you're still out there, if you're dosing calcium chloride solution and magnesium chloride solution, you should, you probably know this, but for those of you who don't know it or may not know it, the pH of those solutions is low, lower than salt water. So, uh, especially concentrated ones, that pH is low. So if you're dosing those things as your primary means of, of adding uh, calcium to the system, for whatever reason, it may just be that that's how you've always done it. And that's how you're going to keep on doing it. Or uh, as you said earlier, you don't have the space for a any kind of calcwasser dosing apparatus and you don't have the space for a calcium reactor or you're not going to do one kind of a deal. If two-part solutions is what you have available and or if that's what you're going to use, or you're going to use a dedicated calcium solution and a magnesium solution and a strontium solution or and a potassium solution, those, those chloride solutions tend to have lower pH. So they're going to bring your alkalinity down a little bit um, because you want your pH to stay higher. Uh, so be aware that the addition of those things is going to um, drop your uh, your pH a little in the system. And, and so moving back to the foods, I don't use any pH adjusting compounds in the foods. There are certainly some things in there that will have an impact on pH, but that's not why they're there. Uh, <clears throat> it, so if... Um... If you feed your fish tank heavily, right, and you're not, you're just feeding fish food and, and you have a lot of fish in the tank, can, can, um, I mean, that's, that's kind of like what I've always done. I've always, um, you know, fed my fish a lot and just really kind of relied on fish poop to help feed the, uh, the corals and also kind of stir, I also stir up the uh, detritus in my tanks, try to get that uh, into the water column to help uh, with the, uh, with the corals and what have you. If, if you are a uh, person like myself who does a lot of feeding other, uh, you know, their tank in terms of fish food, is that, uh, do you think in your opinion, adequate enough versus actually target, uh, targeting coral food, broadcast feeding, uh, coral food to a tank? I think that it is entirely down to the system that we're talking about for you. Yes, that's totally fine. And I would, I would always say this, if when a question like that is asked, my inclination is to say, well, how, how did the, the corals yeah. look? How do the how do the animals look? And when the response is, "Well, they look great," you know, then my response is, "Well, then keep yeah, doing keep it. Doing what you're you know, doing. It's obviously working." Now, on the case of somebody like ACI or a coral farm where they that's not good enough, yeah. that's not providing the necessary nutrients, right. they will see a response, and they may have no alternative because they got to take care of those those animals and feeding on a frequent basis is something that keeps the, the, the animals not only alive, but um, growing at, at, at the maximum rate that they can achieve. You never know what that maximum rate is until you start feeding the tank or you do something different and all of a sudden you get whatever, a, a half inch of growth in a few days, whereas the coral hadn't grown half an inch in six months. 
you start to see, oh, there's a lot more potential here than I was aware of, and maybe this has something to do with it, whatever it was you just did. Do, do you have to be careful with your um, your product and your foods in terms of um, you know overdosing and, and you know potentially getting a cyano or other problematic algae? Is that um, something you got to look out for? I think you have to do that with every food. I, I think overdosing anything, including water, is problematic. Uh, everything can be overdosed. So everything needs to be dosed according to, in the, in the case of foods, according to the nutrient budget in that system. What's the rate of nutrient import and export, and how far can you push that before you start having a problem? You may not have, even with elevated phosphate, you may not see nuisance organisms appear it all depends on the individual system and a lot of uh, a lot of that is i think down to um flow and um the 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 microbial consortium that's present i mean there there's there's probably uh, so many variables because some guys will some people will run high phosphate systems and there's seemingly no visible evidence of cyanobacteria other people it gets a teensy bit above 0.02 and they can't get rid of it kind of a problem so it it could be factors that are outside of that phosphate number so yeah be 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 intelligent when applying any food what's your uh what's your go-to in terms of fight fighting a cyano I haven't had cyano in a system in a long, long time, so I don't have an approach in terms of how do I reactively treat it. Um, I strive for a balance of nutrient uptake in the system. I apply bacteria every so often, especially with new systems. After a system has become mature, I tend to apply it a lot less frequently, and I rely more on... Um, just the system being in balance as a as a matter of it maturing. So, and in mature systems, cyanobacteria just doesn't generally become a problematic. Jake is making a comment. Some companies have been promoting low phosphate foods, and something about that doesn't sit well with me. Um, yeah. The uh, reformer, are amino acids, in your opinion, as important as minor um, and trace elements, or are they like comparing apples and oranges? Yeah, they're definitely not. They're both important in my in my belief. I don't think that they are. I think they are comparing apples and oranges. Um, if you are dosing amino acids in a system, you may see a very visible response uh, to, uh, to to the dosing in terms of polyp extension, um, in terms of coloration that goes above and beyond what you are achieving with your minor and trace elements. Definitely, if you're going to incorporate something new into your routine, stick with that for a, a period of time that's long enough for you to make an honest assessment of how it's impacting the system. Changing too many things at the same time, you're never going to know. And that does you no good. I mean, so, uh, but yeah, they're, they're important. Specific amino acids, I think, are more important than others. Um, but without a doubt, they are uh, involved with so many um, critical processes and you start adding them to a system and, and you do notice a difference. So um, 
I want to do a switch gears again and ask a question that somebody had actually, Adam Moore had, had posted right before the live stream started. And um, he wanted, and these are products, he's asking a question about a couple of products that I'm not th that familiar with, uh, Chris, but he wants you to explain inoculate, uh, inocul inocul inoculate and remediate yep. the pro remediate. products. And, um, and also can they be used in conjunction with traditional methods of carbon dosing, you know, vodka and vinegar? Absolutely. They both can. Uh, they're both dry. They're both dry microbial blends. The primary difference between them is that inoculate is more aggressive on dissolved inorganic nitrogen, less aggressive on uh, particulate organic material. Remediate, it's the other way around. So if you have a new system and you're trying to cycle it pretty quickly, then you can use the inoculate. If it's a more mature system and you're dealing with more accumulation of organic sediment, then the remediate is the, the the more effective of those two under those circumstances. But they both can be used with any kind of carbon dosing, um, and they're both they're both entirely compatible, even in the same container. If you were to mix them up, I don't know. Carbon dosing kind of scares me, but uh, that's me. Yeah, I it, it's some people do it, other people no. <laughs> um. Sammy31D has a question. Any plans to release a, a calc product that is, um, battles with Tropic Marin AFR calc with uh, traces? Any? Um, no. no, no, absolutely no. And I'll tell you why. I am not a huge advocate of putting elements into a solution form, but when you're trying to do something that is incredibly consistent and precise, that's really the only way to do it. I don't care what the what what the people will say about oh they use special blending technology and by they i don't mean tropic marin i have the utmost respect for tropic marin i'm sure that they know way more about this however it is exceedingly difficult to get a homogeneous dry blend when you're dealing with multiple ingredients especially in tiny tiny quantities and for some things you can't get it in there reliably I'll just say it right now. It is impossible to get it in there reliably in a dry form and it be homogenous all the way throughout. So I don't care. Take take a tub of product uh, of the, of some product, do an ICP on it. Get another a, another tub, do an ICP on that, or just take an ICP from the top of the tub and the bottom of the tub. It won't matter. Those numbers are not going to match up. Um, so how critical is that? Maybe it's not that important at all, but it's not the sort of thing that I would do in product development with, with our stuff. That's one of the reasons why I went to, um, the, uh, the four part approach with the salt, because again, it was, it was genius the way that, that, uh, that ESV had done it. And again, I didn't know about it until after someone had pointed it out because I had said, yeah, we're doing four part. And they said, Oh, like ESV. And I thought, oh, I think that was me. Okay. <laughs> I was think it, it might've okay, been yeah, you because I was using it. Yeah. It could have yeah. been. And so, um, the reason that I do it that way is that it's, everything is incredibly consistent, you know? So then I'm, I'm absolutely positive, but you couldn't even take Kalkwasser and mix one more ingredient with it and reliably have that dispersed all the way throughout. In my, <clears throat> in my opinion, now you could use a auto mixer or something that's known to be able to blend powders extremely homogeneously, but the density of all of those materials will be slightly different. 
and the friability of those materials will all be slightly different, which means that certain things will pulverize and certain things will settle even throughout the loading out process. So um, reliably, you couldn't get a consistent product in, in a dry form like that. That's a great idea, I guess, if you could pull it off. But in theory. Again, not saying they can't, but I just, but man, it would surprise me to death. I mean, it really would. Uh, Jake has another question. Any insights about organic versus inorganic phosphate and nitrate sources? No. I do not have any insight. I love your uh, honesty there, Chris, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, if you I don't know, know an answer, know. The, the answer to a question, you just flat out say, I don't know, or I'm not going to comment. No. Or... <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. Um, Jake, what, what, why, what are you, what are you asking for? Uh, Jake is typing. Jake, uh, yeah, we, uh, <laughs> we need some more, uh, more details there, Jake, to get that question answered. So, uh, while we're waiting for Jake to, uh, provide more information, if he is going to uh, do that, um, Chris, why don't, why don't you talk about in terms of, uh, you know, how folks can find your, uh, products, you know, um, I heard of you, guys through ACI and, and, and I've, um, been going through ACI to get, get all my captivate, uh, you know, eight stuff, but, uh, how can folks out there, um, get all of your stuff? So for those people who, uh, probably most people who are watching this know who ACI is that ACI is a distributor. You must be in the industry to, and have an account set up with ACI and meet all their criteria to, to, uh, deal with them. If you're a store or if you are, if, whatever, if you meet the criteria, the necessary criteria, then you can contact ACI uh, if, if you're wanting to set something up on a wholesale level. Or you can contact Champion Lighting and Supply, who um, is also uh, starting to wholesale the product um, very soon here. Um, if you are a consumer, then you would go to our website. Down at the bottom of the of, of all of the pages, there's a purchase link. Click on that, and it'll take you to uh, the appropriate place on the website, and it'll show you the uh, vendors who are selling our product directly to consumers. And so that's just a handful of people at this point in time, and and uh, so that's that's how you would. Um, find the product. Um, RC Reefer, when will your salt be available directly from you or in? Aquaholics. That would be up to them. Uh, it's available through me for for bulk sizes. Um, any of the retailers who carry our product line have the ability to bring the salt in. It it is just a matter of contacting that that retailer and whatever their procedure is. You know, run run through those steps and and put your Put your order in. Okay, so Jake uh, has uh, expanded on that uh, question. Triton Biobase is supposedly a superior or organophosphate source, and I just don't know anything about it. I see. Versus versus inorganic phosphorus sources. I don't know that it matters dramatically where it comes to whether or not the corals can actually take it up. It's kind of along the same lines as the question that, that you posed to me earlier regarding, is it better to test the calcwasser solution with conductivity or with pH? It kind of is, if, if they're both going to achieve the same goal and you know that they're both going to um, uh, have the 
the, the desired result of telling you how this stuff is, 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 uh, is keeping, then for all intents and purposes, it's giving you the same kind of information. In this case, people have been dosing phosphate solutions for a long, long time, inorganic phosphate solutions. People have been feeding fish and corals with, uh, with fish meal and every type of seafood available, which is going to provide an organic form of phosphorus. Does one have the benefit over the other one? Man, I don't know. I'm, I'm inclined to think that they are both being taken up by the coral one way or another. They're either being consumed directly in the way of particulate organic material, or maybe the zooxanthellae are, are primarily pulling the inorganic form of phosphate up. I would kind of expect that to be the case, but I haven't looked into it. So that's a long way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> Rob upstate New York. Thank you so much for the super chat. Uh, the comment is I feel a science exam after this chat laugh out loud. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm especially, and you, you on a science exam, go, go look at the website and see, read, read some of the, uh, the product descriptions and the instructions. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty verbose on those things. And to the point where I think a lot of people look at it and think, I'm not going to read any of this. And I know that's true because I, because people contact me and tell me as much, but I, I want to impress upon people something that um, just a, just a little reminder. And this comes back to the whole, whole calc washer thing as well. Water chemistry is not something to screw around with, especially in a reef system. Please be aware of the impact of some of the things that you do and the, and how they can impact the system in general, not only the life forms in the, in, in the system, but really to wreck things uh, if you're not careful. And take the time to read what the manufacturers have to say because somebody obviously thought that it was important. Now, I know people don't have a whole lot of extra time to spend to go through my paragraphs full of stuff, but it's there for a reason. So refer, please refer to it. Well, listen, I mean, you, you guys are, uh, extremely, uh, thorough. You know, when, when I started using your traces, you, you essentially told me to, um, send you my ICP test results and, and that, uh, you would essentially help make recommendations in terms of the amount of traces to dose based on those ICP, uh, test results. Yeah. And you've got a, uh, formula, I guess, uh, you know, kind of a, um, a plug and play type of thing on your website, or you sent me something or it was a, um, you're popping in the ICP test uh, results, and and you're you're getting um, direction right in terms of how to um, uh, approach in terms of the amount to dose in terms of the traces. So yeah, pretty freaking. It standardizes things. That that's the important thing about that particular document is that uh, oftentimes an, an ICP will say the calcium number is high. Okay, well high relative to what? High relative to the standard of somebody saying. Oh, your calcium shouldn't be over 425 or something like this. What our spreadsheet does is it takes the sum of everything. Uh, it calculates a salinity. I then compare that salinity value with standard seawater salinity. And then we make a sliding adjustment to, well, what would the values of all these elements be if the salinity of seawater was the salinity of your tank? And so if your calcium happens to be at 400, 
which is low relative to most people's way of thinking. But your salinity is 33 and a half or something like this. Well, maybe your calcium is actually high. You know, so it takes it, it takes that high, low, kind of ambiguous classification and it actually quantifies it in a way where you can look at it and see, oh, well, it really is low or really is high or, hey, my, you know, my magnesium is lower than it ought to be kind of a thing. Like you actually have the ability that to, to look at those numbers and I think make a more intelligent assessment as to do I need to do anything with this or not. Right. Um, so that's, that's something that if somebody is interested in that, email me. I'm going to put it up on the website soonish. Um, but for the time being, I'm not. So you'll have to email me and I will send it to you. You fill it out, you send it back, and then I will provide you a personalized recommendation of how to proceed from there. Very sweet. So dude, we've, uh, we've covered a lot of ground here tonight. Any, uh, anything else? Did we miss any major, uh, areas in terms of our discussion here that you would uh, like to bring up or nope. <laughs> we've hit all the high points? <laughs> I don't have anything else. Uh, yeah, certainly not that, uh, that that I would like to bring up. So uh, I, I sincerely appreciate having the opportunity to be on your live stream. It's been great fun. I love talking reef stuff, as everybody who knows me knows. You know, I can be on the phone with somebody, and you think you're going to be on the phone for five minutes, and an hour and a half later, we're yeah, I mean, you know, still I mean, talking. We, we, uh, we uh, earlier this week, we we were touching base to supposedly do a five-minute Skype test, and I think it turned into a 40-minute conversation. I was like, you know, right. I mean, I love talking about Reef too, man. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, you're a you're a wealth of information there, Chris, and I appreciate you um, taking the time to answer all the uh, my questions and all the viewers' uh, questions. So, thanks a lot, man. Really, uh, really appreciate you um, carving some time out of your busy uh, schedule. So, Absolutely. folks, that's going to do it for this show. I want to also um, thank Bulk Resupply and Ecotech Marine again for being a uh, being sponsors of the show, and and also want to thank all you folks for tuning in. And uh, thanks also to the folks that um, contributed via the uh, Super Chat. Really, really appreciate that. Finally, a big thank you to Paul, who um, moderated tonight's live stream, has been moderating the past uh, live streams. I also want to remind you that all episodes of Wrapping with Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher, as well as Amazon now. Uh, my next live stream will be next Thursday, June 23rd at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is a uh, recommendation from Jake <clears throat> Barnett Schutman from RBS Fish World. Barnett is responsible for importing most Filipino Red Sea and all Madagascar and Papua New Guinea fish. Jake calls him a god among men. So I don't think you should be missing this uh, live stream next week. If you want to check out the full upcoming schedule of guests, you can visit reefbum.com under the YouTube section. Until then, be safe, be well, and we will see you next time.